Fourth Lecture, Part 1 of On the Future of Our Educational Institutions by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by J. M. Kennedy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Delivered on the 5th of March, 1872. Ladies and gentlemen, now that you have followed my tale up to this point, and that we have made ourselves joint masters of the solitary, remote, and at times abusive duologue of the philosopher and his companion, I sincerely hope that you, like strong swimmers, are ready to proceed on the second half of our journey, especially as I can promise you that a few other marionettes will appear in the puppet play of my adventure, and that if up to the present you have only been able to do little more than endure what I have been telling you, the waves of my story will now bear you more quickly and easily towards the end. In other words, we have now come to a turning, and it would be advisable for us to take a short glance backward to see what we think we have gained from such a varied conversation. Remain in your present position, the philosopher seemed to say to his companion, for you may cherish hopes. It is more and more clearly evident that we have no educational institutions at all, but that we ought to have them. Our public schools, established, it would seem, for this high object, have either become the nurseries of a reprehensible culture which repels the true culture with profound hatred, i.e., a true aristocratic culture founded upon a few carefully chosen minds, or they foster a micrological and sterile learning which, while it is far removed from culture, has at least this merit, that it avoids that reprehensible culture as well as the true culture. The philosopher had particularly drawn his companion's attention to the strange corruption which must have entered into the hearts of culture when the state of thought itself capable of tyrannizing over it and attaining its ends through it, and further when the state, in conjunction with this culture, struggled against other hostile forces as well as against the spirit, which the philosopher ventured to call the true German spirit. This spirit, linked to the Greeks by the noblest ties and shown by its past history to have been steadfast and courageous, pure and lofty in its aims, its faculties qualifying it for the high task of freeing modern man from the curse of modernity. The spirit is condemned to live apart, banished from its inheritance. But when its slow, painful tones of woe resound through the desert of the present, then the overladen and gaily decorated caravan of culture is pulled up short, horror-stricken. We must not only astonish, but terrify. Such was the philosopher's opinion. Not to fly shamefully away, but to take the offensive, was his advice. But he especially counseled his companion not to ponder too anxiously over the individual from whom, through a higher instinct, this aversion for the present barbarism proceeded. Let it perish. The Pythian god had no difficulty in finding a new tripod, a second Pythia, so long, at least, as the mystic cold vapors rose from the earth. The philosopher once more began to speak. Be careful to remember, my friend, he said. There are two things you must not confuse. A man must learn a great deal that he may live and take part in the struggle for existence. But everything that he as an individual learns and does with this end in view has nothing whatever to do with culture. This latter only takes its beginning in a sphere that lies far above the world of necessity, indulgence, and the struggle for existence. The question now is to what extent a man values his ego in comparison with other egos, how much of his strength he uses up in the endeavor to earn his living. 
Many a one, by stoically confining his needs within a narrow compass, will shortly and easily reach the sphere in which he may forget and, as it were, shake off his ego, so that he can enjoy perpetual youth in a solar system of timeless and impersonal things. Another widens the scope and needs of his ego as much as possible, and builds the mausoleum of his ego in vast proportions, as if he were well prepared to fight and conquer that terrible adversary, time. In this instinct also we may see a longing for immortality, wealth and power, wisdom, presence of mind, eloquence, a flourishing outward aspect, a renowned name. All of these are merely turned into the means by which an insatiable, personal will to live craves for a new life, with which, again, it hankers after an eternity that is at least seen to be illusory. But even in this highest form of ego, in the enhanced needs of such a distended and, as it were, collective individual, true culture is never touched upon. And if, for example, art is sought after, only its disseminating and stimulating actions come into prominence, i.e. those which least give rise to pure and noble art, and most of all to low and degraded forms of it. For in all his efforts, however great and exceptional they seem to the onlooker, he never succeeds in freeing himself from his own hankering and restless personality, that illuminated, ethereal sphere where one may contemplate without the obstruction of one's own personality continually recedes from him. And thus, let him learn, travel, and collect as he may. He must always live an exiled life at a remote distance from a higher life and from true culture. For true culture would scorn to contaminate itself with the needy and covetous individual. It well knows how to give the slip to the man who would fain employ it as a means of attaining to egotistic ends. And if any one cherishes the belief that he has firmly secured it as a means of livelihood, and that he can procure the necessities of life by its sedulous cultivation, then it suddenly steals away with noiseless steps and an air of derisive mockery. I will thus ask you, my friend, not to confound this culture, this sensitive, fastidious, ethereal goddess, with that useful maid-of-all-work which is also called culture, but which is only the intellectual servant and counselor of one's practical necessities, wants, and means of livelihood. Every kind of training, however, which holds out the prospect of breadwinning as its end and aim, is not a training for culture as we understand the word, but merely a collection of precepts and directions to show how, in the struggle for existence, a man may preserve and protect his own person. It may be freely admitted that for the great majority of men such a course of instruction is of the highest importance, and the more arduous the struggle is the more intensely must the young man strain every nerve to utilize his strength to the best advantage. But... Let no one think for a moment that the schools which urge him on this struggle and prepare him for it are in any way seriously to be considered as establishments of culture. They are institutions which teach one how to take part in the battle of life, whether they promise to turn out civil servants, or merchants, or officers, or wholesale dealers, or farmers, or physicians, or men with a technical training. The regulations and standards prevailing at such institutions differ from those in a true educational institution, and what in the latter is permitted, and even freely held out as often as possible, ought to be considered as a criminal offense in the former. Let me give you an example. If you wish to guide a young man on the path of true culture, beware of interpreting his naive, confident, and, 
as it were, immediate and personal relationship with nature. The woods, the rocks, the winds, the vulture, the flowers, the butterfly, the meads, the mountain slopes, must all speak to him in their own language. In them he must, as it were, come to know himself again in countless reflections and images, in a variegated round of changing visions. And in this way he will unconsciously and gradually feel the metaphysical unity of all things in the great image of nature, and at the same time tranquilize his soul in the contemplation of her eternal endurance and necessity. But how many young men should be permitted to grow up in such close and almost personal proximity to nature? The others must learn another true betimes, how to subdue nature to themselves. Here is an end of this naive metaphysics and the physiology of plants and animals, geology, inorganic chemistry, force their devotees to view nature from an altogether different standpoint. What is lost by this new point of view is not only a poetical phantasmagoria, but the instinctive, true, and unique point of view, instead of which we have shrewd and clever calculations, and, so to speak, overreachings of nature. Thus, to the truly cultured man is vouchsafed the inestimable belief of being able to remain faithful, without a break, to the contemplative instincts of his childhood, and so to attain to a calmness, unity, consistency, and harmony, which can never even be thought of by a man who is compelled to fight in the struggle for existence. You must not think, however, that I wish to withhold all praise from our primary and secondary schools. I honor the seminaries where boys learn arithmetic and master modern languages, and study geography and the marvelous discoveries made in natural science. I'm quite prepared to say further that those youths who pass through the better classes of secondary schools are well entitled to make the claims put forward by the fully-fledged public schoolboy. And the time is certainly not far distant when such pupils will be everywhere, freely admitted to the universities and positions under the government which has hitherto been the case only with scholars from the public schools, of our present public schools, be it noted. I cannot, however, refrain from adding the melancholy reflection. If it be true that secondary and public schools are, on the whole, working so heartily in common towards the same end, and differ from each other in only such a slight degree that they may take equal rank before the tribunal of the state, then we completely lack another kind of educational institutions those for the development of culture. To say the least, the secondary schools cannot be reproached with this, for they have up to the present propitiously and honorably followed up tendencies of a lower order, but for one nevertheless highly necessary. In the public schools, however, there is much less honesty and very much less ability too, for in them we find an instinctive feeling of shame, the unconscious perception of the fact that the whole institution has been ignominiously degraded, and that the sonorous words of wise and apathetic teachers are contradictory to the dreary, barbaric, and sterile reality. So there are no true cultural institutions. And in those very places where its pretense to culture is still kept up, we find the people more hopeless, atrophied, and discontented than in the secondary schools, where the so-called realistic subjects are taught. Besides this, only think how immature and uninformed one must be in the company of such teachers when one actually misunderstands the rigorously defined philosophical expressions real and realism to such a degree as to think them the contraries of mind and matter, and to interpret realism as the road to knowledge, formation, and mastery of reality. 
I, for my own part, know of only two exact contraries. Institutions for teaching culture and institutions for teaching how to succeed in life. All our present institutions belong to the second class, but I am speaking only of the first. About two hours went by while the philosophically-minded couple chatted about such startling questions. Night slowly fell in the meantime, and when in the twilight the philosopher's voice had sounded like natural music through the woods, it now rang out in the profound darkness of the night when he was speaking with excitement, or even passionately, his tones hissing and thundering far down the valley and reverberating among the trees and rocks. Suddenly, he was silent. He had just repeated, almost pathetically, the words, we have no true educational institutions. We have no true educational institutions. When something fell down just in front of him, it might have been a fir cone, and his dog barked and ran towards it. Thus interrupted, the philosopher raised his head and suddenly became aware of the darkness, the cool air, and the lonely situation of himself and his companion. Well, what are we about? he ejaculated. It's dark. You know whom we were expecting here, but he hasn't come. We have waited in vain. Let us go. I must now, ladies and gentlemen, convey to you the impressions experienced by my friend and myself as we eagerly listened to this conversation, which we heard distinctly in our hiding place. I have already told you that at that place and at that hour we had intended to hold a festival in commemoration of something, and this something had to do with nothing else than matters concerning educational training, of which we, in our own youthful opinions, had garnered a plentiful harvest during our past life. We were thus disposed to remember with gratitude the institution which we had at one time thought out for ourselves at that very spot in order, as I have already mentioned, that we might reciprocally encourage and watch over one another's educational impulses. But a sudden and unexpected light was thrown on all that past life as we silently gave ourselves up to the vehement words of the philosopher. As when a traveler walking heedlessly across unknown ground suddenly puts his foot over the edge of a cliff, so it now seemed to us that we had hastened to meet the great danger rather than run away from it. Here at this spot, so memorable to us, we heard the warning. Back, not another step. Know you not whether your footsteps tend, whether this deceitful path is luring you? It seemed to us that we now knew, and our feelings of overflowing thankfulness impelled us so irresistibly towards our earnest counselor and trusty Eckhart that both of us sprang up at the moment and rushed towards the philosopher to embrace him. He was just about to move off, and had already turned sideways when we rushed up to him. The dog turned sharply round and barked, thinking doubtless, like the philosopher's companion, of an attempt at robbery rather than an enraptured embrace. It was plain that he had forgotten us. In a word, he ran away. Our embrace was a miserable failure when we did overtake him, for my friend gave a loud yell as the dog bit him, and the philosopher himself sprang away from me with such force that we both fell. What with the dog and the men there was a scramble that lasted a few minutes, until my friend began to call out loudly, parroting the philosopher's own words. In the name of all culture and pseudo-culture, what does the silly dog want with us? Hence, you confounded dog, you uninitiated, never to be initiated, hasten away from us, silent and unashamed. After this outburst, matters were cleared up to some extent, at any rate so far as they could be cleared up in the darkness of the wood. Oh, it's you, ejaculated the philosopher. Our duelists, how you startled us. What on earth drives you to jump out upon us like this at such a time of the night? Joy, thankfulness, and reverence, said we, shaking the old man by the hand whilst the dog barked as if he understood. 
we can't let you go without telling you this and if you are to understand everything you must not go away just yet we want to ask you about so many things that lie heavily on our hearts stay yet a while we know every foot of the way and can accompany you afterwards the gentleman you expect may yet turn up look over yonder on the rhine what is that we see so clearly floating on the surface of the water as if surrounded by the light of many torches it is there that we may look for your friend I would even venture to say that it is he who is coming towards you with all those lights. And so much did we assail the surprised old man with our entreaties, promises, and fantastic delusions that we persuaded the philosopher to walk to and fro with us on the little plateau. By learned lumber undisturbed, as my friend added. Shame on you, said the philosopher. If you really want to quote something, why choose Faust? However, I will give in to you, quotation or no quotation, if only our young companions will keep still and not run away as suddenly as they made their appearance, for they are like will-o'-the-wisps. We are amazed when they are there and again when they are not there. My friend immediately recited, Respect, I hope, will teach us how we may, our lighter disposition keep at bay. Our course is only zigzag as a rule. The philosopher was surprised and stood still. "'You astonish me, you will-o'-the-wisps,' he said. "'This is no quagmire we are on now. "'Of what use is this ground to you? "'What does the proximity of a philosopher mean to you? "'For around him the air is sharp and clear, "'the ground dry and hard. "'We must find out a more fantastic region "'for your zigzagging inclinations.' "'I think,' interrupted the philosopher's companion at this point, "'the gentlemen have already told us "'that they promised to meet someone here at this hour.' But it seems to me that they listen to our comedy of education like a chorus, and truly idealistic spectators, for they did not disturb us. We thought we were alone with each other. Yes, that is true, said the philosopher. That praise must not be withheld from them, but it seems to me that they deserve still higher praise. Here I seized the philosopher's hand and said, That man must be as obtuse as a reptile, with his stomach on the ground and his head buried in mud. Who can listen to such a discourse as yours without becoming earnest and thoughtful, or even excited and indignant? Self-accusation and annoyance might perhaps cause a few to get angry, but our impression was quite different. The only thing I do not know is how exactly to describe it. This hour was so well-timed for us, and our minds were so well-prepared that we sat there like empty vessels, and now it seems as if we're filled to overflowing with this new wisdom. For I no longer know how to help myself, and if someone asks me what I am thinking of doing tomorrow or what I have made up my mind to do with myself from now on, I should not know what to answer. For it is easy to see that we have up to the present been living and educating ourselves in the wrong way. But what can we do to cross over the chasm between today and tomorrow? Yes, acknowledged my friend. I have a similar feeling, and I ask the same question. But besides that, I feel as if I were frightened away from German culture by entertaining such high and ideal views of its task. Yea, as if I were unworthy to cooperate with it in carrying out its aims. I only see a resplendent file of the highest natures moving towards this goal. I can imagine over what abysses and through what temptations this procession travels. Who would dare to be so bold as to join in it? At this point the philosopher's companion again turned to him and said, Don't be angry with me when I tell you that I too have a somewhat similar feeling, which I have not mentioned to you before. When talking to you I often felt drawn out of myself, as it were, and inspired with your ardour and hope till I almost forgot myself. Then a calmer moment arrives, a piercing wind of reality brings me back to earth, and then I see the wide gulf between us, over which you yourself, as in a dream, draw me back again. 
Then what you call culture merely totters meaninglessly around me or lies heavily on my breast. It is like a shirt of mail that weighs me down, or a sword that I cannot wield. End of Fourth Lecture, Part 1